Today is February 26th, 2021. The first facilities for housing migrant children are open under the Biden administration. A new Harvard study finds that Americans are suffering increasingly from loneliness. And the CPAC kicks off this weekend with Trump speaking on Sunday. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got a great episode for you here today, bringing you all the best news and insights from the left and the right, just like y'all always like to hear. You know we're doing our best to try and look at the good, the bad, and the ugly on the both sides of the aisle and try to split the difference to find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. I can say with all certainty, this is the best podcast that we have done yet. I know, it's hard to believe because all the other ones are great too, but this one is going to be the best one yet. So with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, Biden administration opens up the first of its administration's child migrant facilities. So Biden goes ahead, uh, goes against what a lot of, I think, the Democrats would have preferred and wanted, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, The media coverage on it has been pretty scant, to say the least. We will also get into that and talk about that a little bit. But for the most part, It looks like Biden has gone through and opened back up a Trump-era facility to be able to house about 713 to 17-year-old illegal immigrant children that come across the border, and they do not have parents or adult guardians with them in order to be able to take care of them and pair them with. So let's go ahead and hop in real quick, and let's listen in. This is actually the Young Turks that are reporting on this. Uh, They are an an incredibly left-leaning source, kind of talking a little bit about what all is going on with these housing facilities that Biden has opened up. The first migrant facility for children has opened its doors under Biden's administration. Now, let me be clear, this is not the first migrant facility for children. Um, This is actually the same facility that was used by the Trump administration in the summer of 2019. And that led to quite a bit of backlash. Immigrant activists speaking out against Donald Trump and his administration for using this facility because it's essentially this giant 66 acre plot of land out of sight, out of mind for many people that consists mostly of giant tents and some trailers. And if Trump got a lot of backlash for it, it is a little strange that the media's attention to this is a little different. But let me give you the details on what we know so far. The emergency facility is located in Carrizo Springs, Texas. The emergency facility, it's a vestige of the Trump administration that was open for only a month in the summer of 2019. And now it's being reactivated to hold up to 700 children ages 13 to 17. So the re- I very, very purposefully chose the Young Turks to talk about this because they are a very, very left-leaning source, okay? You heard her mention in that video, the media coverage of it has been a little bit weird. I would agree with that. I think the media coverage on this has been incredibly poor, namely because the number one thing that they're all talking about is the fact that this was something that was opened up under the Trump administration, So this specific camp was opened up under the Trump administration. However, 
she failed to mention it as well, there were also child immigrant uh, facilities that were opened up under the Obama administration as well. So just for a little bit of context, okay? If we remember back to the Trump administration and what all happened with his immigration policy, he came in and was basically like, this is going to be my shtick. It's going to be my thing. I'm going to come in and hammer home over and over and over again the importance for having an incredibly strong immigration policy, okay? Biden has since, like we've talked about in the past couple of episodes, come through and started to roll a lot of that back. Much of that has been rolled back through executive orders. There hasn't been any immig- like official immigration bill that has actually been passed by both houses of Congress. So everything that has been done has been done through executive orders done by Biden. Okay, A lot of this is heavily focused on rolling back funding, especially for ICE. A lot of this is uh, in some ways, extending or growing the number of people that can get a certain kind of green card or visa coming into the country. And a lot of it is also centered around allowing people to come back into the country legally if they have already been deported one time for coming into the country illegally. Okay. So I want to be incredibly clear here. Okay. Yes, Donald Trump had this entire camp open for children during his administration for a month in 2019. No, he is not the only president to do it. This is a bipartisan problem, okay? And the thing that has blown my mind about the coverage of this is the blatant refusal from the media to just acknowledge the fact that it is bad when a Republican president does it and when a Democratic president does it, okay? If you are going to say that separating children from their families or taking migrant children and putting them in specifically in camps for themselves is wrong, then you have to be able to say it for a Biden administration along with the Trump administration. Trump got absolutely reamed out about this during his administration because in a lot of ways, it's not a great look, right? And we'll get into a lot of the problems, I guess, as to why it's been, why it's there, why it was created, what all it's doing. But we have to really, we if we're going to not fall into this incredible path of hypocrisy here, we have to be able to acknowledge something that's bad. Doesn't matter which side does it, right? And this is definitely not good. Okay, so. This has a lot of people on the left scratching their heads around why Biden would be doing it, okay? Interestingly, you do have some people on the far left that aren't big fans of Biden to begin with, because you have to remember, the people that hate Biden the most are Trump, all Trump supporters. The people that hate Biden the second most are the far left progressives, okay? Because far left progressives do not like moderate Democrats because they don't get stuff done that they want to get done. So... There are a very small portion of people that are a little bit upset with Biden for doing this. However, it is not even close to the degree that people are ridiculing Trump for doing the literally the exact same thing in the exact same place. Okay, the amount of people that are, I mean, just refusing to call out the hypocrisy here really is unbelievable. And if we think back to the Trump administration, the coverage of it. There were pictures all over the place and there were headlines everywhere. Trump is the president that's putting kids in cages, right? That was the language that they were using. Incredibly emphatic rhetoric in order to be able to induce an emotional response from Americans in hating Donald Trump for his immigration policy. You do not see one headline saying that Biden is putting kids in cages. There's not one. And you're not going to find one because in a lot of ways, as a lot of us know, 
the media conglomerate as a whole is kind of just an extension of the PR wing of the Biden administration. So, so far, um, we're kind of, we've talked a little bit about, I guess, what it ha- what happened through the Trump administration and, you know, what's going on now. This leads, I think, to a place of what Biden has done so far has really decreased funding for security. So Biden is now coming to this crossroads where he's like, okay, I want to decrease funding because that's what progressives want, right? Progressives don't want increased funding for border security. But I also have an incredible increase in the amount of children and families that are pouring over the border because they know that my immigration policy is going to be much more relaxed than the previous administration, okay? You have to do something with the people that come over. Okay, the immigration laws haven't changed. The path to citizenship hasn't changed. The path to getting green cards has not changed. You have to be able to do something with the people that come across the border and come into your facilities. Okay, you can't just let kids roam around without any parents in a country that they've never been to before, speaking a language that they do not speak and having no idea where to go or what to do. So if you are going to, as Biden, decreasing decrease funding for ice and make it easier for people to come into the country you have to either a make it much easier for them to be able to get work visas and be able to find a place in a community in the in america which maybe he's going to eventually get around to or you're going to have to build child migrant facilities there's really no other way to do it okay you can't just allow people in and just allow them to roam especially if they are completely unwatched children ages 10 13 14 15 years old because they can't help them like they can't defend themselves in the way that they would need to so uh, i think the most most difficult thing about the media coverage about all of this is that um Of course, the hypocrisy is bad enough, but the refusal to acknowledge that putting kids in facilities by themselves is not a good thing, right? Like you, you have to be able to admit that this is a human rights abuse that we don't want to participate in as Americans. Okay. Regardless of the administration that you're going to, that you're going to support, right? You have to be able to say, okay, Kids, whether you want to call it kids in cages, whether you want to call it migrant facilities, whatever you want to call it, this has got to go. So there has to be policy implementations that come that allow for that to no longer take place. Okay. Like I have said before, I'm much more libertarian in my immigration policy. I would prefer it to be easier for people to be able to have paths towards green cards and being able to work on visas here in America, okay? But if you're going to do this, you have to increase the funding and the security at the border, which is the gigantic flaw that is happening right now within the within the Biden administration's immigration policy. The, and, you know, the Republicans are going to tear him up about this. And honestly, they rightfully should. If Biden over and over and over again is going to condemn Trump for the immigration policy that he has, if he's going to talk about kids being in cages, if he's going to pander to this media coverage that was done over Trump and his immigration policy, then the Republicans should absolutely fire back with the fact that Biden has gone ahead and done the exact same thing. Because... As a president, when your hands are tied and you can't get the funding that you need in order to be able to actually increase and check who is coming into the country, right, and you don't have the funding that you need in order to be able to actually process the immigrants that are coming into the country, you have to do something with those people, okay? You can't just let them roam around. 
what ends up happening is you throw people into facilities like the one that the Biden administration just opened back up. Um, it is incredibly disheartening, to say the least, uh, to see the lack of media coverage around it, to see the hypocrisy in it. But we all know that that's just kind of stuff that happens nowadays just part of it. Okay. But we have to be able to, and on this podcast, our goal is to acknowledge bad when both sides do it. Doesn't matter if one size side does it and we like that side better. Both of them are bad. Okay. We have to be able to acknowledge hypocrisy where it exists and then have conversations that are constructive about, okay, well, how do we fix the problem, right? What's the solution going to be? Immigration has been a problem and a sticking point, a hot topic in American politics for at least 30 years now. It's time for an administration to step up and actually get something done with it. It wasn't Trump. It wasn't Obama. It wasn't Bush. It wasn't Clinton. Things have got to actually eventually start to change, okay? Hopefully that happens under the Biden administration. But we'll have to see. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop into our second story, story number two. So our second story of the day, this is one that honestly, it's not necessarily partisan, uh, but it's been very interesting, I think, reading through the study and reading through some, some different articles and stuff that have come out about it. So one of the many untold stories around the pandemic and around a lot of the quarantines and lockdowns that have happened over the past year or so has been how the pandemic has affected people other than them getting sick from COVID, okay? The main headlines that you hear, and there's nothing wrong with this necessarily, it just is the main headlines that you hear, is that people are getting sick with COVID and where they're having a family members that are dying of COVID. And so you need to be incredibly cautious. You need to lock down. You need to quarantine. You need to stay away from people as much as possible in order to be able to protect your grandparents. That's the main narrative that has been told. Okay. However, there's now being a lot of research done into how people have handled, handled the lockdowns internally and personally within their own households, okay? Uh, with people being locked down in their houses, not being allowed to go anywhere, there are a plethora of things that people can struggle with, and it doesn't just affect the elderly. It also affects the youths as well. So a Harvard-based study called Making Caring Common uh, conducted a study in October with the goal of basically finding out how people are dealing with or experiencing loneliness. Okay. It wasn't specifically targeted towards the pandemic necessarily, but there was a question or two around how the pandemic has changed loneliness and a couple of other things in people's lives, uh, which was very interesting. It was mainly done to just see how America as a whole is struggling with or if they are struggling with loneliness. And some of the initial findings are pretty startling. So the survey results suggest that 30 36% of all Americans feel serious loneliness, okay? This grouping includes 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, Showing, like I said earlier, that it isn't just the elderly people that are struggling with a lot of this. It actually is young people as well. So 61% of young people ages 18 to 25 reported serious loneliness within the, within the prior month, okay? Compared to only 24% of adults ages 55 to 65, so the youngest age range in the study actually had the highest percentage of people that felt serious loneliness, 
within the prior month. And all of the age group, it was grouped between 18 and 65. The young people actually had were suffering from and had more suffering from low, serious loneliness than any other age bracket within the entire study. The other interesting thing is that mothers with young children also reported experiencing very high levels of loneliness as well. 35% of parents reported frequent loneliness, but the percentage of mothers was actually much higher at 51%. 47% of mothers reported an increased feeling of loneliness since the pandemic. So what you have is mothers as a group experienced loneliness at 51% of 51% of mothers experienced loneliness. And then on top of that, 47% of those mothers said that they had an increased feeling of loneliness since the pandemic started. Okay. So even though people may have family around, right? Or some of them may be young children. They have still felt increasingly isolated during this past season of quarantines and lockdowns. And a lot of this has also been connected to an increased use of social media. So there have been multiple studies conducted over the past couple of years about how social media affects us as human beings and the way that we interact with the world around us and the way that we feel about ourselves as well. This also connected an increase in loneliness with the increase in use of social media. So when the pandemic started, many of these social media companies came out and they were basically like, listen, I know a lot of y'all are worried about being able to see friends and family, but we've got you. That's why we're here. We're here to help you solve this problem of loneliness. We're help you to feel, helping you to feel connected. We want to put you in groups of other people to be able to make those connections feel real and vibrant and fun. And you don't have to worry about being locked down in your house because at any moment, you can grab your phone or your laptop and you can feel connected to the entire world, right? That's the pitch that we hear from social media companies. The problem is in data, that's not how it plays out. If you actually look at the different data and the different studies that have come out about social media, the more that social media use increases, the more that loneliness decreases as well. It is almost like this faux sense of connectivity that we feel with people around us through social media is actually a detriment to our, our being able to connect with the people that we're trying to connect with. Of course, a lot of this is because when you're on social media, you are seeing stuff that is tr double and even triple filtered, right? You are not seeing what is actually going on in people's lives. Uh, it's a hundred percent, a fake portrayal of people's actual lives. And of course this leads to a lot of difficult thoughts and comparisons between one person and another, uh, that they're looking at online. Again, if y'all have not seen it, you've got to watch the social dilemma on Netflix talks about a lot of this a ton, but in a lot of ways, it really does seem counterintuitive. It seems like if there was any time for these social media companies to thrive and for people to be able to enjoy the use of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it may be, during a pandemic with a global-wide lockdown should be the time, right? But that's not what's happening. It didn't help to decrease loneliness at all that people felt throughout the pandemic, and it is starting to prove that social media platforms will never be able to fully replace in-person interactions. Of course they won't. Now, another thing that is incredibly interesting is how often loneliness has been connected with very strongly a multitude of other problems as well, including anxiety, depression, domestic abuse, heart issues, and substance abuse as well. 
Although there have not been, I think, any official numbers or studies that have come out around an increased use in substances or like opioids or uh, different types of drugs or alcohol, there have been many people are expecting to see a, an incredible or substantial rise in difficulties associated with all of these things. Um, and I think what really troubles me a lot about this is that these aren't really conversations that are being had around lockdowns and around quarantines. I understand and I recognize wholeheartedly the purpose for and the need for having lockdowns in order to be able to be able to stymie the spread of COVID. I get that. I do. Okay. I'm not sitting here saying lockdowns are a horrible idea all the time and that you should never wear a face mask. I'm not going to be that guy. What I am going to say though, is that there needs to be an approach to lockdowns and a, a, and a, an addressing by the CDC and the federal government and a concerted effort to try and solve some of the other issues that may arrive or arise around it. Okay. If you are going to say that you have to lock an entire city down or you have to lock an entire state down or an entire country down, you also have to reckon with the fact that there will be a multiplicity of other factors that come into play that could be equally as detrimental to someone as getting COVID-19. Now, um, I don't know what those numbers are going to look at, what look like when they come out. However, just looking at the increased sale of alcohol alone I would be very, very surprised if substance abuse is not through the roof, if divorces have not gone up as a result of this pandemic, if heart disease or struggles with obesity have not gone up. And these are all health problems that have not really been addressed. They haven't been talked about. And it kind of frustrates me a little bit because these are all things that are incredibly important. They are, these are all things that you have to be able to address, that you have to be able to look at. And you have to be able to understand fully if you're going to make the decision for people to lock an entire city down, right? Uh, I think that one of the incredible things, uh, uh, very simply about alcohol, was at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was reading a story from the Wall Street Journal that was talking about Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania, not listing uh, ABC stores as being essential businesses. So as a result, they had to close down. Immediately, people started flooding out of Pennsylvania to go get alcohol. They were going all over the place in order to be able to pick up liquor, and they were buying it incredible in incredible quantities. Distillers and brewers could not make the products fast enough in order for people to be able to get it. I mean, when this pandemic first started, it was like everyone was rushing to the liquor store. And I went down to uh, one of the local liquor stores here in Columbia and walked in after a couple, I think maybe like a month or two after the pandemic started and went to pick something up. And the guy was standing there and he just looked exhausted. And I was like, man, it's pretty crazy that they still have y'all open. And he was like, yeah, well, we're con technically considered an essential business. So everybody else gets to go home, but we have to stay here risking our lives so that people can come up and get liquor. And I was like, standing there with a bottle of bourbon, like, well, now I feel horrible. But anyways, I do think that this is a conversation that needs to be happening more and more. And I think that it is a conversation that can happen. It just needs to be talked about. If you are feeling depressed or anxious or you, you know, you're have suffering from a wide variety of different health problems or something, you need to reach out to people. You need to communicate with people and tell them that you're struggling through that. 
If you're struggling with severe loneliness, you need to reach out and communicate with people about that as well. Uh, it can't just be we lock everything down and it just goes from there, right? No other support outside of that. There has to be something extra. So with all of that, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and our last story, story number three. So for our third story of today, the conservative political action conference kicked off last night. All of the coolest Republicans were there. Everybody who somebody was there giving a speech and alluding to whether or not they may be making a presidential bid in 2024. Ooh, all the good stuff. So there should be a ton of speeches given from really a lot of the stalwarts within the Republican Party. Um, I can give a list of it a little bit later down the line, but uh, the big spotlight, of course, is going to be on none other than our former 45th president, Donald J. Trump. So he is giving his first speech live to a large audience on Sunday since leaving the White House. And it is, I'm sure, going to be incredibly interesting. For the past month or so, Trump has pretty much been sitting back, silently deliberating at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, playing a ton of golf. He did come out and claim that he actually has increased his drive by 20 yards in the last month. I'm sure if you talk to him about it, he would tell you he's also thinking about starting to go ahead submit his bid to start on the PGA tour. Um, if the whole 2024 presidential election bid does not go as planned. Um, a lot of his, his, a lot of talk is about what all he's planning on talking about. He's of course going to plan on ripping the Biden administration in every single way that he can on everything from foreign policy in China to immigration policy at home. There's no way that Donald Trump is going to be able to resist getting up on a stage in front of a ton of people that support him and think that he's the best guy in the room and not rip on Biden, right? He's going to have all these people up there cheering him on and Donald Trump's going to be like, my time to shine. I've been waiting quietly in the shadows so I could get up here and start tearing Biden apart. So he's going to be up there on Sunday giving a whole bunch of speeches. Other speeches that are expected to be made are from Secretary, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, uh, along with Senators Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, mm -hmm, Josh Hawley, all of the Republican senators that everybody just loves so much. Uh, Republicans across the country, of course, will be listening intently to see any early signs of people planning to make a presidential bid. Okay, And I heard that Ted Cruz is actually planning on purchasing Cancun from Mexico if he gets elected because he enjoyed his trip there so much over this past week. That was that was sarcasm. I also heard that of Josh Hawley, who nobody had ever heard of before last September, besides his mother decides to run, um, he will actually start wearing a thinning blonde wig and an oversized suit jacket just to look exactly like Donald Trump. So for whoever decides to run, they will be looking at a huge come from behind win because in early polling, which I know that it's early because 2024 is like three and a half years away before, you know, anything actually gets done for an election. But uh, early polling shows that Trump is way ahead. OK, Trump voters want Trump back in the White House, whatever the cost. Right. And there are, of course, 
there have been a lot of hints from Trump about what he's going to do. He's talked about even forming his own party. He's talked about whether or not, you know, thinking about and deliberating and putting together plans to be able to make America great again. Um, so he's going to have to, you know, if all these people are going to come out and they're actually going to run against Donald Trump, if Ted Cruz plans on running against Donald Trump again, he's going to have to get in shape. And he's going to have to do it really, really quick because it is going to be very hard to be able to take away that voting electorate from Donald Trump going into 2024. Now, a lot of things can happen over the next couple of years. Of course, I get that. Totally understand it. It's very early to be talking about 2024 presidential election. But this also actually has a lot of, I think, really interesting undertones to how the Republicans will shape their bid for the 2022 midterms as well. Because the Republican Party is at a huge, is at a crossroads, okay? It's in a huge identity crisis right now. And this, you know, conservative political action conference, right, CPAC, is where all of the major heavy-hitting Republicans get together. And for the most part, they debate, argue, give speeches back and forth as to how the face of the Republican Party should look. Should the face of the Republican Party be orange and Donald Trump? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was mean. Should it be Donald Trump or should it be a different direction? Should it be more traditional GOP? Should it be more concert, you know, a bit maybe more moderate, like less conservative? What should it look like? How are they going to be able to get a lot of those suburban voters? And how are they going to be able to get a lot of that middle of the country that they lost out on with Donald Trump on the ticket? A lot of that is going to be decided, talked about, batted back and forth over this weekend. So I'm sure there will be tons of interesting stuff that comes out of it. I'm sure that all of you will be watching it intently throughout the entire weekend because who doesn't love more than to watch a whole bunch of old Republicans yell at each other on a stage at a gigantic conference. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our story number three. Let's go ahead and head on to into our last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. Something that made me smile this week is actually, I'm going to do it again, y'all, a book that I'm reading, okay? So I started reading this book. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It is probably one of the largest document documents uh, that goes through and actually tells the entire story of Hitler as a child growing up, how he formed and started the Nazi party, everything that happened through World War II, all the way through the Nuremberg trials. It is incredibly fascinating. And in a lot of ways, I think it's given me a really good perspective on just how fragile democracy can be, which is a daunting thought to say the least, but it has really broadened my perspective a ton on Humans don't really learn from history very well. And if we want to be able to continue to keep this thing going that we have here in the United States, we have to work diligently to not squander voices that we don't like, to not try and tamp out a whole bunch of crazy people if they're saying something wrong, but instead allow those voices to be spoken to and argued against in the public arena of voices and allow those arguments to be discredited, right? One of the biggest problems that happened in Nazi Germany was the fact that people's voices were silenced and they were silenced incredibly effectively. And that's honestly, in a lot of ways, the goal that I have here on this podcast. I want to be able to have a space and an area for people of all different political ide ideologies, all, all different backgrounds, talking about things that they think, that they believe, and kind of just parsing through that, figuring out what it is they believe, talking through stuff 
with people that they may not normally talk to or hearing a perspective that they normally wouldn't. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think it has kind of encouraged me in my road towards bringing hopefully a more nuanced perspective on kind of what's going on here in the United States. So if you want to check out the book, it's called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. You should definitely give it's a long read, but it is definitely worth it. It has been a very, very interesting read so far. So with all of that, it's the end of the show. Thank you so much for stopping in, for listening, and for checking us out. Remember, as always, I'm on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast with one T. I'm on YouTube at Split the Difference, Facebook at Split the Difference, and of course, my website at SplitTheDifference.com, also with one T. Go and drop me likes and subscribes. All of that stuff helps out a ton. And getting my name out there and getting more people listening into the content. It also lets me know what you guys like to listen to and what you guys like to hear so I can, you know, curate better content for y'all. So remember, as always, y'all, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We're always going to be reasonable. And, of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.